Let's give attention now to the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 31 of Mark chapter 13. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we pray that you would enable us to lay aside preconceptions, ideas about what it must mean, and be able to hear, to listen, to receive what it does mean. We ask that in studying this portion, we would not be distracted with sensationalistic questions, but that we would understand that it is here to direct our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, to give us strength for our daily battles in the confidence of who he is and of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for us. So, Lord, open our hearts and convey your blessing to each one. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been away from our series in the Gospel of Mark now since October of last year. So perhaps a few words to remind everybody of where we are. The Gospels, and maybe especially the Gospel of Mark, have been called passion narratives with extended introductions. In other words, a disproportionate amount of emphasis is given to the events of the last week of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus. Now, I say disproportionate, obviously not disproportionate for the purpose of the gospel writers, just disproportionate in terms of how much time goes by between the extended introduction of the Gospels, covering, in the case of Luke, for instance, covering from before his birth to his whole public ministry up until the last week of his death, well, covering a space then of 30-odd years, and all of that goes by fairly quickly, and then we really slow down when we come to the last week of his life. Now, that's also true of Matthew, of Mark, and of John, as well as of Luke, The reason for that, of course, is that that is particularly the element that the gospel writers wish to emphasize. They want us to have more information, more detail about that last part of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus than the other parts of his life. This is not done randomly. Now, here we have the Lord Jesus in the last week of his life. He has come to the temple. He has cleansed the temple. He has engaged in conflict with the rulers 
of the temple. He has defeated them in terms of the verbal argument. But what's going to happen in the next chapter is that their plot to kill him will take off, will ultimately succeed. He'll be crucified in chapter 15. And then in chapter 16, he'll rise from the dead. So you can see that we are very near the end of his life. His public teaching is over. This whole chapter, chapter 13, is given to the disciples while he's seated on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And they ask him a question about a prediction he made as he was leaving that all the stones of the temple would be toppled over, that not one would be left upon another. Keep that scene in mind. They're sitting on the other side of a valley. So there's a, they're sitting on the mountainside. There's a valley in between, and over here's Jerusalem. And in the pinnacle of Jerusalem, there's the temple gleaming with white marble the whole time that this teaching is being given, the whole time that this conversation is underway. And so the disciples ask him, what did that mean when you said, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So they asked him, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And first of all, he tells them what will not be the sign But he gives them warnings. He gives them warnings against being deceived because many would try to take advantage of the tumult and troubles that were coming to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, since we've been away from this for a while, let me remind you also of the approach that we're taking to this passage. First of all, the most basic principle, and this applies to all the Gospels, to every passage in the Gospels, it's primarily and fundamentally about the Lord Jesus. The Gospels are written to show us Jesus Christ. If we miss that, whatever other matters of detail we may get right, we have missed the whole point. Why does Mark record this discourse? He records this discourse because it's an important part of his portrait of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, you may remember that I explained that in approaching this, we went to look for the exhortations. We went to look for the commands. We went to look for what the Lord Jesus tells us to do. Those are often the natural dividing points. And in any case, those are the way that we will obey him. You can get lost in all sorts of speculations and theories and miss out on the basic reality that Christ tells his disciples what to do. Finally, a third great principle for interpreting this passage is that it all centers in Christ. So the reason for a lot of what he will say, the reason for it is found in the life, in the experience of Christ. There's a consequence, there's an outflow of that in the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And then that destruction of the temple as an example or an instance of God's judgment will then echo forward to the great judgment that comes at the end. This has been the pattern throughout the Bible. There's an appeal to Sodom and Gomorrah, for instance, one of God's limited local judgments to write about how God will judge 
in the future. God judged the world once by a flood, and Peter explicitly alludes to that previous judgment and draws some points of comparison and some points of contrast with that judgment that still awaits us in the future. God's judgments throughout history, in other words, rhyme. You see similar things coming up again and again. And that's why a preliminary judgment can give us information or can remind us of the future judgment. And so whichever side of that preliminary judgment you're on, it still gives you something that you can use. It still has an application for you, even if you're on the other side of that preliminary judgment. Everybody should have taken warning from Sodom and Gomorrah. Everyone should have taken warning from the flood. Everyone should take warning from the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, with all of that by way of introduction, let's come to our passage for today. You notice how it begins. It begins with the word but in those days. So here's a contrast, but the Lord Jesus is alluding to days, not just one day, but to multiple days that are coming. And he says, after that tribulation, after the distress that has been described in the preceding verses, in verses 14 through 23. And then he uses this language, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And of course, we have some questions about that. What does it mean for the sun to be darkened? What does it mean for the moon to withhold its light? What does it mean for the stars of heaven to fall? This is Old Testament language and Astute readers of the Gospel of Mark would have recognized that. And remember, to whom is this being announced? To whom is this being proclaimed? Well, it's being proclaimed to Christ's disciples. It's not going out to a mixed multitude in this case. It's being proclaimed to people who were familiar with the Old Testament and who had been traveling with Christ, hearing how he interpreted Scripture for some time. Now, there's several Old Testament passages that have similar language, but the closest match is Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. There we read, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Now, what is that about? Well, that's about the destruction of Babylon. And verse 17 in that same chapter gives us an indication of that. Verse 17 in Isaiah 13, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Well, we've read about that then in the book of Daniel. Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. Was the sun darkened? Were there eclipses? Not that we know of. All right. Now, what about Isaiah chapter 34? This also gives us background language. This gives us a parallel. Speaking now of judgment on Edom, verse 4 says, All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. I don't mean to go through all the references. You also have in Ezekiel chapter 32, there's similar language about the sun being darkened. And in Ezekiel 32, 
It's about Babylon punishing Egypt. So that's very clearly political and historical. In Joel chapter 2, you have similar language. The sun will be dark and the moon will be turned into blood. And Peter specifically tells us in Acts chapter 2 that that was fulfilled in the events of Christ. So when we hear the sun will be darkened, our first thought is, well, when? When does that happen? We'll just pick on that one sign for the purposes of illustration. Well, you remember Mark chapter 15. There was great darkness over all the earth for the space of three hours. The initial realization of this darkening was found in the person of Christ because he is at the center of all of the prophecies. The sun being darkened is associated with God's judgment. When did God's judgment come? God's judgment came on the cross. Now, God's judgment coming on the cross, and especially when you remember that the veil of the temple was torn in two, also showed that God had no more use for the temple of Jerusalem. And so when that was destroyed about 40 years later, that was, so to speak, an aftershock of making visible of something that had already happened. God's glory left the temple when the Lord Jesus left it for the long time, for the last time. And after that, it was just a building. And eventually it was not even that anymore. Not one stone was left upon another. Of course, on the great day of judgment, we expect darkness once again, darkness for those who do not believe, darkness for those who do not know the Lord, but a great light for those who do. Now, that's the background in Isaiah and other prophets. But then there's another Old Testament allusion because Jesus was giving his disciples an Old Testament workout, so to speak, in this portion when he says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, that is drawing from Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has that great vision of how the kingdom of God ultimately destroys and takes the place of all human kingdoms. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, he says, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, that's the title that's used in our text, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, one of the things that happens when we read this passage is we hear they'll see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And our mind fast forwards to the book of Acts. We think of the Lord Jesus ascending into heaven, being received by a cloud. We think of the angel saying, as you've seen him go up, he'll come back. And we think that coming in the clouds is necessarily a reference to the second coming of Christ. But Daniel chapter 7 is not about the second coming. Daniel chapter 7 is about the ascension. It's about when one like the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and is given a kingdom there. So when the allusion is to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we shouldn't automatically assume that this is about the second coming. This is about Christ's enthronement over all. As you'll say in the end of the Gospel of Matthew, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. And this is the reason 
that Mark includes this portion in his gospel. What Jesus are we supposed to see from what Mark does here? Well, we are supposed to see that Jesus is the glorified Son of Man. Why do the disciples need to know this now? Well, they're about to find out what it means that Jesus is the suffering servant from the book of Isaiah. That's going to be hard on them. That is going to tax their faith. All of them were offended, were made to stumble because of Christ. Not very much further on. They needed something. They needed a brace to their faith. Well, we need that same brace. We need that same support. We look around and we see chaos and disaster. We see many things that don't get better but get worse. And we wonder what is going on. The Son of Man has been glorified. He has been given an everlasting kingdom. The Lord in whom we trust is the Lord who rules over all. He's not waiting to start ruling. Now, it's true that not all his enemies have been subdued. He must rule until all his enemies are made his footstool. And that hasn't happened yet. But he is genuinely ruling. The enemies do not stand a chance. So that's the first thing we see here. The Son of Man is glorified. And then it says, verse 27, then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. Here, Mark sets before us the Lord Jesus as the one who knows as the one who remembers, as the one who gathers all his elect. And he furthers that image of the glorified Son of Man because who sends out the angels? This same person. Who is in charge of all the heavenly hosts? It is none other than the Son of Man who was going to experience darkness as he came under God's curse, which he endured In our stead, the same one who was crucified for us will be able to send out the angels to gather us. Now, the detail about the angels is not an Old Testament illusion, but the being gathered is. In the book of Deuteronomy, before Israel ever went into the promised land, Moses had already told them that because of their sins, they would be scattered. But he also gave them Some beautiful promises about that. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. And Nehemiah takes that up in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9, when he's praying before the Lord. He's acknowledging the sins of Israel. But then he says, remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. The Lord Jesus is alluding to those things in this description of himself. You see, the Son of Man is now carrying out the role that in the Old Testament was assigned to God himself. It's a very clear declaration that the Lord Jesus is the God who gathers his elect ones, is the God who is in command of the heavenly host. 
And so the same one who is glorified has not forgotten you because he's glorified. He continues to remain at work and he will gather his elect. They are currently scattered or scattered far and wide under the sky. But wherever you go, wherever you find a precious one whom Christ has chosen, you may be absolutely sure that he has not forgotten them. Now, they're gathered in more ways than one. The elect are gathered through the preaching of the gospel. They're gathered into congregations. They're gathered into the church through the preaching of the gospel. And of course, when they die, the elect are gathered to be with the Lord. We read about the beggar in that parable of the poor beggar Lazarus and the rich man, that he died, the beggar died, and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The Lord doesn't lose any of his own at the moment of death. And of course, on the great day, on the day of judgment, the day of resurrection, they will be gathered again. Not one will be lost. The glorified Son of Man is your faithful shepherd who will not lose you, who will gather you, who will collect you, who will make sure that you are not left behind. And then Jesus goes on to add. He says that we should learn. This is the imperative. This is the command in our portion for today. Learn a parable from the fig tree. When figs are tender, when leaves are coming, you know that summer will be near. It's a very short parable and something they could all have related to. They probably had some fig trees around them where they were sitting on the Mount of Olives. When you see all of this happening, know that it is near at the door. And then he comes to a verse which gives a lot of interpreters a lot of heartburn. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. These things and this generation are what cause the difficulties in interpreting this particular passage. Because if Jesus had meant to say some generation other than the people he was speaking to, it's almost inexplicable that he wouldn't say that generation. We use this for things that are near. We use that for things that are far away. If his conversation was exclusively about the end of the world in one way or another, why in the world would he say this generation. Now, there are various unconvincing dodges that people use to get around that difficulty, but it remains. He's speaking to people who asked him about the destruction of the temple. He's speaking about something that will happen within the next few years because he says this generation. Which generation? The generation that was there. That's the generation that generation would not pass away. So he's speaking about something they're going to see fulfilled in principle in him, fulfilled in an exemplary way, as an instance, as an illustration, in about 40 years. And then, of course, all of that will echo into the great judgment. So what are we supposed to learn from that if we're on the other side of AD 70? Well, again, it's echoing forward. We need to understand the principles by which we live in a world where judgment is genuinely approaching. Now, he's going to go on to say that of that day and hour, the day and hour of his return, even he, according to his human nature, did not know. 
So none of this is to enable us to set a date. None of this is to allow us to figure out where we stand in God's prophetic calendar. We know where we stand in God's prophetic calendar. The Lord Jesus has been exalted and glorified. The Lord Jesus has been given a throne and he will reign until all his enemies are subdued. He'll come again and receive us to himself so that where he is, there we may be also, so that we will be forever with the Lord. That's where we are in God's prophetic calendar. And that is really all we need to know about where we are in God's prophetic calendar. But again, why does Mark tell us all of this? Well, what's the last verse of our passage? Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Here again, the Old Testament background is crucial. And here again, the Old Testament background is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Here's the cry given to the prophet. All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And what does Jesus say about his own words? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Who does he think he is? Well, he knows. He is the Lord from Isaiah chapter 40. He is God. Who is our suffering, our crucified son of man who experienced God's judgment under darkness? It is the Lord himself. It is God, the son. That's who Mark is laying before us so that the disciples, so that we would not doubt, we would not question, we would not fear. We would not let our hearts be overwhelmed, whether by speculations, whether by the problems we see, whether by anxieties about the future or for whatever other reason. Who is our Savior? Who is our Jesus? Well, he's the Son of Man. And yes, he does suffer in that capacity. But he's also risen and glorified. He's given all authority. Who is our Jesus? He's the one who gathers us without forgetting any of us. Who is our Jesus? He is the one whose word lasts forever. It's never out of date. It's never proven wrong. It's never irrelevant. The word of the Lord endures forever. What Lord? What words? These words from our Lord Jesus Christ. If we don't see him as God in the flesh, we still have not learned the lesson of Mark chapter 13. A glorious Savior is held before us. And so when things don't seem glorious, when the promises seem uncertain, when fulfillment seems far away, You know, it wasn't very long after this that the Son of Man was glorified. It won't be very long, not in God's terms, before we see the complete fulfillment of all that has been given to us in Christ. Amen.